in Sacramento, it is a big deal. And for two, two nights, we get to wrap our arms around our community and share with them the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, consider taking part. If you need a Bible this morning, if you'd raise your hand, the ushers are handing them out. And also, if you, do not, if you did not get a bulletin or a study guide, you need one this morning. And so if they've got in their hands both bulletin or both a study guide as well as Bibles, so keep your hand up down here. Craig? <clears throat> oh, I hope I can make it here this morning. Um, we had a turkey shoot yesterday, and I don't know how many people were there. I said 60 in the first service. Somebody corrected me and said 100. Uh, I don't know, but uh, we shot a lot of holes in the air. Not one single turkey died, though. They all got gift cards for their turkey, and... Uh, we let them know the turkeys are on container ships just off of San Francisco, and we are hoping they will have them by Christmas. But we had little ones shooting, and we had big ones shooting, and we had youth, and we had women, and we had men, and it was a blast. And uh, people kept asking me, Brad, who was that guy that was leading the shoot? You did a great job, you and your team. Yeah, you, Brad Beers. You know, <clears throat> nobody got shot. And one thing that was really funny yesterday is we're shooting, this little spike buck comes out into the clearing where we're shooting and starts grazing. But he was just off of the range, so we kept on shooting, and he could have cared less that we were there. You know, I think in a year or two, he's in trouble. But somebody brought this to me this morning, Brad. Uh little cross made from some empties. <laughs> and I don't know what to do with this. You know? It's a Second Amendment cross. I'll hang it in Jesse's office. But boy, what a time we had. A lot of fun. A lot of families there. I think our youngest winner was Niall Rupert. And how old is Niall? He's about this high. But he was, he was one of our winners. And then we had people that never shot a gun before, went home with a turkey. And it, it was a lot of fun. But where I got in trouble, John Basio usually mans the microphone and kind of MCs the thing and calls the people up to the firing line and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> well, John wimped out on us. Uh, I was coming across the Salt Flats on Tuesday, and I get a telephone call, and it was from John Basio. And he said, would you tell John Howard, I am so very, very, very sorry. I don't think I'm going to be able to make it there. I said, you loser. Come on. I mean, all John has done in the last week was had quadruple bypass surgery. Open heart surgery. Sternum split. Rib spread. And he couldn't make it. I told him to walk it off. And anyway, I took his place. And so I was on that microphone for probably five hours. And then twice this morning. And we're just praying that the old voice box has another two hours left in it. Two hours. <laughs> 
That wasn't you, Becky, was that? Was that you that said that? You want to come up here and sit beside me? No. Oh, good to laugh together, isn't it? Been laughing together with you people for 30 and a half years. And if you got an email this week from the church, you know that at the end of December, Sandy and I are stepping aside as members of the pastoral staff of Sierra Bible Church. Our ministry is not coming to an end. We're just going to transition to being members of Sierra Bible Church, not a pastor at Sierra Bible Church. We're still going to live in Truckee. This is our home and has been for over 30 years. <clears throat> but God's calling us to another chapter. And we'll share a little bit of that in the message this morning. But uh, it is my hope that as long as God gives me breath in my lungs and strength in my body to be proclaiming his word to his people. And so uh, it's just a new chapter that's coming. And we've had several chapters during our ministry, last 30 and a half years right here as the senior pastor for 26 years, and then uh, Pastor Jesse's associate for the last four years. But uh, there's a new day dawning, and some things going to happen, and we covet your prayers, but let me get rid of my cough drop. I have a friend one time that used to put his cough drop in the corner of his cheek, and he measured his sermon by how quick the cough drop dissolved. <laughs> and when the cough drop dissolved, he had been preaching long enough. Well, one day he's preaching, and he's preaching, and he's preaching, and it doesn't seem like the cough drop is dissolving, and, and he just can't figure out what's going on. <clears throat> he's getting restless. The congregation's getting restless. And he realized that when he reached into his jacket pocket, along with the cough drop, there was a button in his pocket. <laughs> and he had popped the button in his mouth, and it wasn't dissolving. And so I have nothing in my mouth. I just took the cough drop out, so we'll... We'll continue on. But it was in the mid-1980s when I was pastoring in Moab, Utah, that God first opened my eyes to the verses that we're going to explore this morning. A gentleman after the first service ran out to the foyer when I went out there during the last song, and he says, I want to ask you a question. You talked about how God laid these verses on your heart when you were pastoring in Moab, Utah. And he says, can you tell me how that worked? And I says, well, the work didn't start just there. It started many, many, many years ago because I was raised in the church, but I was raised by a very unique family. I was raised in a Baptist church in Filer, Idaho, just outside of Twin Falls, Idaho. I was educated in a Missouri Synod Lutheran grade school. And when our church didn't have services for one reason or another, it didn't mean the Hoig family stayed home. We went visiting. Nazarene churches, Methodist churches, Mennonite churches. And during the summer, my sister and I attended every single vacation Bible school that the town had to offer. And the greatest gift my parents ever gave to me, and I, it took me many years to realize this, was they never said, we're right and they're wrong. They always talked about the distinctives, but they said, we are one family in Christ which set me up and fitted me for a 45-year pastor career to basically community churches, where the people that are in here this morning come from every background and every walk of Christian life that you can imagine. And God, through those things, and then through what he showed me in Moab there in the 70s, or in the 80s, and this awakening 
that he, he brought into my heart in the mid-1980s were the first seeds for what would eventually become this, the One Another Project. This message has burned in my heart for nearly 40 years. And my passion to proclaim it is greater today, not less. And it's getting greater with every passing day. And as Sandy and I prepare to step away from pastoral ministry at the end of this year, it is in faith that God is going to open doors for the proclamation of this message beyond the borders of Truckee, California. I just finished speaking at a men's retreat in Woodland Park, Colorado. And the one thing that kept coming back and back and back after each session was the body of Christ. The body of Christ needs to hear this message. And we are believing that God is going to open up doors, that the body of Christ through us over the next few years is going to hear this message. This morning's message was also published in the magazine Emphasis on Faith and Living in the summer of 1987 under the title of the sermon's title today, The Fragrance That Binds. Pray with me as we dive into God's Word this morning. <clears throat> Father in heaven, this morning as I was driving around our fair city, praying, thinking, I was relating with the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the Corinthian church and said, you know, when I first came among you, I didn't come with wonderful displays. I didn't come with elocution that was perfect. I did not come to you with confident exhortations. I came haltering, halt, halting and stammering. My knees were knocking together in fear. And if anything happened that was worth happening, it was because the Holy Spirit of the living God took my words and placed them on your heart. Father, your word also exhorts us from the book of James, be not many teachers, for we shall incur a stricter judgment. And uh, Lord, I don't know exactly what that means all the way, but uh, I know this is it puts fear in my soul. But Lord, you have called me to proclaim your word to your people these last 45 years. And yet I still come trembling to this sacred desk. And I pray that the Holy Spirit of the living God will take my stammering lips and my knocking knees and leave a deposit in the hearts of these people <clears throat> this morning that they'll never walk away from. And that they will leave this house of worship this morning, maybe another step closer to their Lord and Savior than they were when they arrived. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have the study guide, I want you to have it in your hand, and I'll, I'll, I'll be crawling out these scriptures, and you turn to them in your Bible as well, if you want. But I've, I've got some emphasis that I want to make, and so... The printed study guide has some of that emphasis. But, first of all, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he proclaimed a great mandate to his followers. The Thursday of Holy Week is known as Maundy Thursday. And it simply is this. It's the Latin phrase, dies manditi, 
which means the day of Christ's great mandate. So that's Maundy Thursday. And the great mandate that Christ gave that night is in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. You can follow it in your Bible or in the study guide. And this is what Jesus said to his disciples. He's just finished washing their feet. He's put his robe back on. He sat back down at the table. And he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And then he adds a caveat. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, by what? By love between the brethren. By this will all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Later in that evening, as Jesus was passing with his disciples from the upper room to the, across the brook Kidron to the Mount of Olives, where he would pray, he also prayed on the way a prayer that's found in John 17. We call it Christ's high priestly prayer. So these words from John 17 are Jesus talking to his Father. Verse 11 says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. The they that he's talking about here are the 11 disciples that are accompanying him to Gethsemane. <clears throat> And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then you drop down to verse 20. Jesus reiterates this prayer twice more. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Let's stop there a second. Verse 11 was addressed to the disciples. He says, Father, I'm praying for these guys, the 11. Verse 20 is very personal because he's praying for you. He said, I not only pray for them, but I'm also praying for everyone who comes to believe in me through their word. If you could today sit down and craft a little genealogical chart, a spiritual genealogical chart, if you would, it would trace, every person in this room would trace back to the upper room. Every one of us. Our beginnings, spiritually speaking, happened in that upper room. Just like if we took a physical genealogy, we would all trace back to Father Adam and Mama Eve. They were our physical parents. Our spiritual parents were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And so Jesus, first of all, prays for the disciples, and now he prays for you. So it's very personal here. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, 
that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may come perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Personally speaking, I believe that these are some of the most vital words that Jesus ever spoke during his ministry on earth. And yet the church often fails to, to understand the implications of these words. The implications of these words are huge, and they affect like nothing else our evangelism within the community in which we live. Jesus prayed, Father, may they be one as we are one. Why? So that the world, so that the world may know that Christ is who he claims to be. Unity among the followers of Christ is a visible, undeniable evidence to a watching world that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He then says, Father, he, he then says, may they love one another as I have loved them. Why? So that all people will know you're his. The evidence that you are truly a disciple of Christ is the love that flows from you to your brothers and sisters in Christ, and vice versa. And the witness, though, isn't for in here. The witness is for out there. That the world may know. That the world may know. That the world <clears throat> may know. Now, Jesus has been pretty specific in warning you and me not to judge one another. But on that evening, Jesus gave to the world outside of our door two yardsticks that they might measure the validity of the church and her message. Because unity among Christians bears witness to the watching world that Christ is who he claims to be. His words, not mine. And when love is displayed between Christians, this bears witness to a watching world that we indeed are his disciples. Unity and love. One says Jesus is genuine and the other one says we belong to him. Now when Christians, for whatever reason it may be, refuse to walk together in unity, what they proclaim then to the watching world is, Jesus was and is a phony. And when they refuse to love one another, as Christ has called us to love one another, the world has every right to conclude, and we don't know Is it any wonder that the two issues that Jesus himself identified as the church's greatest visible witness to a watching world are the two issues that she struggles with the most? Unity and love. I dare say when a car drives down the street past our church and there's three churches in a row, they don't see one church. They see three. Somebody said one time there was a community that had three churches on, on a certain corner and in the church, in one church on Sunday morning, you could hear them singing, will there be any stars in my crown? And in the next church they were singing, no, not one. And in the third church they were singing, and that will be glory for me. 
And that's kind of how that is. I think one thing that keeps us from true unity is that we keep confusing unity with uniformity. And Jesus has never called us to uniformity. He's called us to unity. Uniformity is everyone in lockstep, saying, doing, believing, everything that I say, do, and believe. My greatest lesson in uniformity was in July of 1969 when I got off of a bus at the United States Navy Recruit Depot in San Diego, California. Within 24 hours, the hundreds of men that got off those buses, we all had the same shoes, the same shirt, the same hat, the same skivvies. We marched to the same chow hall, ate the same food, and for the next nine weeks, we did it all together. We looked alike, walked alike, and sounded alike. That's uniformity. And Jesus never called us to uniformity. He called us to unity. And unity is only found in oneness of purpose. On your study guide there, the next verse I have written down there comes from Philippians chapter 2. Verse 1, the Apostle Paul wrote, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You know, it'd be really nice if the Bible gave us a verse that identified our purpose for being on this earth. And God being God and the scripture being the scripture, guess what? He did just that. And the great purpose verse of the Bible is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 reads this way. But you, look around, all of you, look around, all of you. You, you under the sound of my voice, you who are child, children of God in Christ, who have been born again of the Spirit, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And here comes the purpose that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. My brothers and sisters in Christ, your true vocation is proclaiming the excellencies of him. That is why he gave you life and breath and being. Now, that which you do to put food on your table that which you do to put a roof over your head, that is your avocation. And it was always meant to be secondary to your true vocation, your true calling. Proclaiming the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, true biblical unity is found when we embrace together our true calling, our true vocation, irrespective of the fact that in peripheral areas of the faith, we may cross a few T's and dot a few I's in a different manner. This was the lesson that my parents taught me. These churches that they would take us to, the school that I was raised that was different from the church in which I was raised, 
they pointed out distinctives that made these people Lutheran and these people Nazarene and these people Mennonite and these people Baptist. But they were convinced we had all knelt at the foot of the same cross and had been cleansed by the blood of the same Savior. And that when we lived God's true purpose for our life, the proclamation of Christ, we were one. In spite of the peripheral differences. And when those differences arise, what covers them? Well, the Bible says it's love that covers them. Turn with me to, this is an in your study guide. You're going to have to open up your Bible now. Psalm 133. You know, I invite you sometimes, there's, there's about... Ten psalms here that are called the Psalms of Ascent. And these psalms, you know, the children of Israel, I'm, I'm, I've been doing a lot of devotional study in the Old Testament. Three times a year, the male, the men of Israel were to appear before God at the temple or at the tabernacle or in Shiloh or the places where the Ark of the Covenant resided. And they would take their families. I mean, we're coming on to the Christmas season. And we talk about Jesus. When he was 12 years old, he gets lost in the crowd. You know, they've gone up to worship. And then he ends up staying behind in Jerusalem. And mom and dad take off with the caravan. Well, these psalms, called the Psalms of Ascent, it means we're going uphill because Jerusalem was high and lifted up, even geographically. The children of Israel would sing these songs in unison as they were journeying to Jerusalem for the feast days. And one of my favorite is this one, and you'll see why in a second. Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It. Unity. Unity is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. And then verse 3. It. What? Unity. Unity is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountain of Zion. For there, where? Where there is unity, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now this is one of those psalms that ought to stir you to ask some questions. Unity is like the anointing oil. And you go, how so? Well, let me tell you something about the anointing oil, first of all. There was a special oil made. God gave him the recipe, and we're going to read it here in just a second. And this was to anoint the utensils within the tabernacle, and it was also to anoint Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were the priests at that time. Now, this, when they anointed them, this was not like a brill cream ad, a little dabble do ya. This was a jar of oil which they poured over their head until it ran down their hair, down their face, through their beard, onto their garment, and dripped on the ground off the hem of their garment. It was glug, 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 glug. Okay? This is the oil we're talking about. And what it's saying here is, unity is like this oil. And the question would be, how? I am so glad you asked. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 30. 
Moses came off the mountain, you know, the second time. The first time they had a little problem. He came down and they had made a calf and started worshiping it and everything. And he had to go back. He broke the tablets that, the, that God had written on. He had to go back on the mountain. Well, he's come back down now and he not only has the Ten Commandments, he has some very, um, very unique blueprints on how to build a tabernacle in a place of worship unto God. And along with the, the blueprints of how to build everything, he brought some recipes home as well. And here's one of the recipes. Exodus 30, verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250. And 250 of aromatic cane. And 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer, and it shall be a holy anointing oil. So here's the picture. We've got these ingredients that are now tossed into, in fact, if you were watching Night in Bethlehem, the kids were smashing up some spices with a mortar and a pestle. That's what's happening here. The, the, the dry ingredients are all being thrown in, and then olive oil is being added, which the olive oil throughout the Old Testament, or the New Testament, and Old Testament, often refers to the presence of the Holy Spirit. So you've got all these ingredients that are now being suspended in this suspension with olive oil as they're being ground and crushed together. Okay, you got the picture here? A master perfumer is doing this. Verse 26. With it, you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering and its utensils and the basin and the stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person or a layman, so to speak, <clears throat> And you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. Whew. That's quite a warning. That is quite a warning. Now let's back up a second. Unity is like the oil. Okay? The oil is made up of five ingredients. Liquid myrrh, sweet-smelling cinnamon, aromatic cane, cassia, and olive oil. Now, when these ingredients were put into that mortar and the pestle began to grind, when blended together, these five ingredients became something that had never existed before. A fragrance came forth out of that mortar that had never existed before. Are you with me? This is yes. This is no. Okay, this is important to understand. And though 
None of the individual ingredients ceased to exist. A new fragrance came into being as they were blended together. A fragrance that none of them could have ever created on their own, but only possible when they were joined with one another. We've got five very distinct ingredients here. They're all very aromatic, maybe except for the olive oil, but they all would awaken your senses. And I believe that even when we've got this brand new oil with a brand new smell to the discerning nose, you'd go, oh, wow, whoo, that is nice. But do I detect a hint of cinnamon? Yeah, you do. Is there some myrrh in this? Yeah, there is. I remember years ago talking with one of our police officers, Andrew Holbrook, when he had a drug-sniffing dog. And he talked to me about, and, and, you know, I'm a farmer. I'm pretty simple. And he says, when you walk into a kitchen and somebody's baking cookies, you go, ah, cookies! Happened at my house yesterday. He says, when the dog walks in and goes, he says, chocolate chips, flour, sugar, salt. And his nose breaks down all the individual ingredients. And I dare say that this brand new oil that has a brand new fragrance that never existed before, we would sense some individual ingredients, and you might smell something, Carl, and I might smell something different, and you might smell something, Peter. And, you know, but here it is, that brand new oil. How does this apply to unity? My brothers and sisters... In Christ, every single one of us who are in Christ bear forth something of the fragrance of Jesus. Or we ought to. And not just in this room. But when we come together, all those individual ingredients bring forth something that is spectacular that we could never bring forth on our own. And a corporate witness goes forth in our community that causes unbelievers to stop and turn and go, what was that smell? And that smells the body of Christ as she walks together in unity. Where the individual fragrances, the individual ingredients become one. And even though each one of us have a separate and unique odor, I'll say fragrance. (laughs) The other might work sometimes, right? But anyway, a unique fragrance, it doesn't hold a candle to the corporate fragrance that happens when we become one in Christ. Unity like the oil made of individual ingredients but as they come together something brand new something that the world cannot disregard happens when we walk together as one 
go back to Psalm 133. Because the psalmist didn't end there. He just keeps pushing the envelope. I'm glad he did. He says, first of all, <clears throat> unity is like the precious oil. We've talked about how it is. But then he makes another distinction in verse 3. He says, unity is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, some of you, if anybody here ever been to the Holy Land? Okay, then you got me hands down on this one. I had to go to Google for this information. But Mount Hermon is a pretty big mountain in that area. And usually, at all times of the year, has snow on top of it. Uh, what I found out, unity is like the dew that perpetually falls on Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon forms one of the greatest geographic features of all that area of the world. And because of its height, it captures the storms that are coming off the Mediterranean, and it captures a great deal of precipitation in a very dry and arid region. You know, it's kind of like the mountains that are on this side of us. You know, the storms come off of the Pacific, and they come across the coastal range, and they hit the Sierras, and we've all been here, and, you know, when there's 15 feet of snow in your front yard. But what amazes me is you just get off the hill here, you're back in the desert. And you're in desert all the way to the Wasatch Front until enough moisture is finally built up coming across the Nevada deserts and the Great Basins that they start getting some moisture again. And then Snowbird and Alta and, you know, Deer Valley and all those places get their snow. But that's what Mount Hermon does. Mount Hermon just sucks it up. Mount Hermon has winter and spring snowfalls that remain on the summit for most of the year. And as that snowpack melts into water, it seeps into the rocks and the fissures feeding springs at the base of the mountain, which form streams that merge into and form the Jordan River. The water in the Jordan River comes off of Mount Hermon. Hmm. So, Verse 3, unity is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. It's perpetual. It continues to be. And then, for there, where? Where there is unity, God ordains a blessing. Life. Life. Forevermore. Life, where there's unity, the blessing of God falls, and in that place there's life. Let me say this. Though the ultimate expression of this church, and what should be the ultimate expression of every church, is the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If the visible evidence of that proclamation in the life of those who have been born again is not love and unity, the sharp edge of our message will be blunted before a watching world. Jesus has ordained through love and unity of his children something that is a fragrance 
that the world just can't get away from. Doesn't mean they're all going to accept us, but I love it in Jerusalem. It says that uh, you know the town of Jerusalem sat back during the early church's formation. They sat back in awe. It says not everybody joined, but they were sure impressed with what was going on. As brothers and sisters were laying down their lives for one another, as they were laying down their resources for one another, as they were loaning to one another and feeding one another and sharing with one another, as if their own things weren't even theirs, but they belonged to the whole. And that unity rocked Jerusalem. And I dare say that it's been God's plan that the world outside of our door gets rocked not only by the power of the gospel that we share but by the transformed lives of the people to whom it has been shared. As they become new creatures in Christ, considering others to be more important than themselves, not looking out anymore for just their own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. And it is so antithetical to the world in which we live, where it's grab yours, get mine, and hang on to it. That when the church becomes one, and that new fragrance wafts from the sanctuary and into our communities where we live and into the halls where we work, and they begin to see that this bunch of people, they are a peculiar people. They sacrifice for each other. They lay down their lives for each other. It's like what they have doesn't belong to them because they are so willing to share it for the good of all. Jesus said, not Wayne, Jesus said, Father, may they be one as you and I are one, that the world might believe that you sent me, or might know, it's not believe, it's know, that the world might know that you sent me. And then to his disciples after he washes their feet, love one another just as I have loved you, because by this will all men know that you are my disciples. Unity in the church, evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be. Love among his followers, evidence that we really are his followers. Oh, my brothers and sisters. Oh, my brothers and sisters. I thank God for the preaching that has come across the pulpit in this room for many, many, many years because I believe it has been gospel center and it has been true. But then when these doors open up, there's a fragrance that's meant to waft forth into this community, up and down your street. A fragrance that I cannot manifest by myself, but I can with you. And the world will be stopped in its tracks and go, what was that? Well, that was the smell of a Christian walking by. As we learn to walk in unity. And in love. By the power of the Holy Spirit. According. been marveling again dear father your your word talks about one body 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body. And what is it, who is it that makes up that body? It is made up by every blood-bought, blood-washed man and woman, boy and girl, who has knelt at the foot of the cross and accepted the Savior's sacrifice on their behalf. And in that moment, we all became members of a grand family. And Father, it's a fact that Christendom across our country, various churches, various denominations, don't do it all the same. But where their chief preoccupation is proclaiming the excellencies of him who brought them out of darkness into his light, there we can walk together as one. And when we do, there is a witness to the world that's watching outside of our door. And when we, by the power of the Spirit, love one another as we have been loved, that too sends forth something into our community that says, ah, they're one of those. <laughs> That's what they said about Peter and John. These uneducated men that are standing before the Sanhedrin, they've just healed somebody in Jesus' name. The Sanhedrin was marveling because they were uneducated men. But this, they concluded, they had been with him. Oh, dear Jesus. May it be evident when we go into this community that we've been with him. Grant us the grace to walk together as one. And to love one another. And leave behind in that unity and in that love the unmistakable presence of Jesus. In whose name we do pray. Amen. Let's stand. Stand together. We're going to sing um, a hymn called I Stand Amazed, and this is the message to our community. And um, yeah, let's sing it together in unity. I Stand Amazed.
than my sorrows he made them his very own he bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone singing how marvelous I had 